Hey there. What? Zen Founder coming out on a Thursday? I decided to release the episode today because according to the World Health Organization, at least, it is Mental Health Awareness Day. And it is also the 10th, the 10th of October. The 10th has become a really significant number for me because it is the 10th of November when my father died and the 10th of May when my brother died. Today's episode is about my brother, Dave, and it is a story about mental health, about addiction. It's a story about our family. It's definitely one of the more personal episodes that I uh, will ever put out into the world. I'm not even sure it's a great idea to tell this story publicly, but I decided to do a podcast about mental health, and part of that is motivated by some of the story that you're about to hear. So out it goes. I will say that this is a story about suicide, and it's a heavy one. It's not one to play in the car with your kids or while you're making breakfast and your family's around. And it is one that might not be a great fit for you if you are in a place where you yourself are struggling or you are in some of your own darkness. I think sometimes hearing more stories about really sad, hard things, you know, you decide if it's a good fit for you. It may be, it may not be. But irregardless, it is my truth. It's part of my story now and my family's story. And I wanted to share it today because this marks the five-month anniversary of when he died. And it also is a day when people around the world are talking about mental health and the need for all of us as humans to tend carefully to ourselves and tend carefully to those around us. So this is one of my attempts to raise awareness about that need, that need for careful tending. You will hear at the end of the podcast, I made reference to an interview with A.D. Pinar. So uh, I decided to reorganize the episodes. The episode with A.D. actually comes out next time. So if you're like, wait, what's she talking about poetry at 80? That's yet to come. It has not yet happened. So sorry for that uh, quick order shift. So yeah, if you decide to move forward with this episode, um, thank you. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you for bearing witness to the life of my brother, who I loved very much and who is no longer with us. And if this is something that moves you, you know, I would encourage you to take steps towards raising mental health awareness with whatever authority or resources are available. Um, contributing to your local NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, can be a great way to help shore up resources for mental health within your own community. They do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of legislative work, and from what I can tell, tend to be really good at making a big difference in the lives of those who are living with mental illness and their family members. So that's one idea. However this finds you, I hope that it will encourage you to be a little kinder, a little gentler to yourself today and uh, extend that same kindness and gentleness to those around you. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. 
This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. When I started the Zen Founder podcast almost four years ago, one of the things that was really important for me to bring into more public conversation was the topic of suicide. So I think one of the first maybe four or five episodes that we did on the podcast, I had a conversation with my friend Brian Castle about one of his friends, another entrepreneur, another founder who had um, taken his life. That, that man's name was Clint. And so we, we kicked it off right at the beginning with pretty intense conversation about mental health and about how suicide shapes the life of so many who are touched by it. And as a mental health professional, I've had, you know, lots of training in suicide prevention and how to talk to people about suicide and how to talk to people about self-harming thoughts. And none of that felt like deeply scary to me. I know that those kinds of thoughts are a part of life for many more people than any of us realize. And it felt important to me as I sought to have public conversations about mental health to really mention suicide and self-harm often and to help people feel like they could use language to express their concerns and their fears related to that topic. Personally, I had, at the outset of the podcast, I had lost a couple of people to suicide. I lost a friend to suicide when I was in high school, my senior year of high school. Her name was Taryn and she was uh, a friend from the volleyball team. And then I'd also lost a, a distant uncle to suicide, not someone that I knew well, but, but certainly his loss affected my family and my extended family. Today, I wanted to take some time to talk with you, <laughs> whoever you are listening to this, about a loss that I never thought I would experience. And I am now today as a professional and a human way more acquainted with suicide than I would like to be. I would like to be much less qualified at my job. Some of you are aware if you, um, if you have been listening to the podcast regularly, you, you may have caught some mention of uh, me losing my brother. And I lost my brother to suicide. He died on May 10th this year, just four days before his 33rd birthday. So he was, um, was very young and was my, my baby brother, someone who uh, I'm seven years older than, than my brother. Um, his name was Dave, David, and I loved him very much and I miss him all the time. And I, you know, had all of these professional experiences talking to people about suicide, helping family members recover from suicide, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that has, of course, touched what it feels like to personally walk through this uh, for me, for my family. 
I will say that it is one of the most isolating experiences of my life. It's a type of grief that is more shadowy, I think, than other kinds of grief. I lost my uh, my dad to cancer not quite a year ago on November 10th of 2018. And that grief felt very different, still tremendous, still really painful. You know, losing a parent is one of the most kind of transformational, rearranging kinds of experiences that that one goes through in life. But that grief felt more palatable, I think, to share with my community. Losing a family member to suicide, I think, is so isolating because in some ways it's so scary. It's so hard to know how to talk about. And it's so, you know, I think people <laughs> under undercover sort of wondering like what happened like what what deep dark lingers there that someone in your family would make this choice or find himself in the situation where this was the natural outcome and I get it it's okay I think there's been some appropriateness and perhaps even solace in in grieving alone or in walking through this alone. Um, in fact, my, my mom kind of right after this happened said, I, I really just don't want to have a public conversation about this. Like I don't want, I don't want to talk about it with anyone. <laughs> I don't want the cards. I don't want the service. I don't want the whole thing. I think some because we'd just gone through it with my dad and some because it is such a different kind of grief. So out of, out of respect for her, I've really not said anything, obviously, um, and, and out of respect for my own need for quiet and privacy. But I think today, and with my mother and brother's permission, my remaining brother, that's so weird, like the math, right? I used to have two brothers, and now I have one. So when people ask me about my family, it's this weird recalculation of math, like how many siblings do you have? It's like I have two brothers, and then I add one living and one who passed on. So there's always this new math that now makes up my family. The reason that I've decided to talk about it, well, first of all, it's sort of core to the mission of the podcast in the very beginning, that this is a place where challenging conversations about mental health happen in the open. And so it feels really important for my own sense of integrity to talk about this here. Secondly, I know I'm now in this like, club, this terrible club of people who have lost someone in this way. And I think that's helpful to maybe talk about the perspective of a survivor a little bit, because I know that many of you know people if you yourself are not someone who has experienced the suicide of a loved one. I think it's it's its own strange grieving and it's really hard to support someone who's in the midst of this process. So I, I thought, you know, it might be helpful for you to hear a little bit about that. And three, I wanted to talk about it on the podcast because because my my brother was here and his life mattered very much to me. And I didn't want him to fade into darkness without there being some public acknowledgement of him and who he was. And this happens to be the platform I have access to, so this is the place where I'm going to talk about it. I've been writing a lot since my brother died. 
Writing and moving seem to be the things that have been helpful. The moving I talked about a a couple episodes back when I talked about the life-saving power of a good hobby. The writing, I don't know that I'll ever finish a book or, you know, do anything with that in public, but it's been so helpful to put language to some of the feelings and some of the very strange experiences that go along with this kind of loss. The first thing that I wrote after my brother died was a reflection on sort of how this happened. And I, I of course, in full disclosure, I have no idea. Like I, I don't, I will never know sort of the corners of his mind. But the thing that came to me or the thing that I really reflected on is that this, this was 10,000 moments in the making. It was not one bad decision. It wasn't one impulsive moment. It was 10,000 heartaches and heartbreaks that he carried with him for years. And I think that's helpful because, of course, as a family member, it's so easy to do that reverse calculation of if I'd let him stay with me when he asked, you know, a few weeks before he died, would it have had a different outcome? If I had not told him honestly how I felt when he crashed my mom's car when he was drunk the day after my dad died, like if I had done these things differently, would the math have added up differently? And maybe a little, but, but probably not because at least in this story, there are things that I wish I had done differently or said differently, but there are also lots of ways that I loved him well. And I think it was helpful for me to do that math, that this outcome was 10,000 moments in the making. And there were 10,000 reasons that he made this choice. And I don't know them all, and I wouldn't do the math the same way, but it's the math that he did. And I, so I think, you know, when people hear about, oh, you lost your brother this way, you know, they, they kind of want like a quick, like what happened? And the truth is like a million things happened. 10,000 things happened. He struggled with alcohol addiction. He struggled so much that he hurt his brain pretty significantly with the level of alcohol use that he engaged in. He isolated himself. He, you know, he struggled to find a meaningful work. There were lots and lots and lots of things. And I will say like very publicly, while the family that I grew up in was not perfect, we were loved really well. He was loved well by my mom, by my dad, by me, by my my other brother, <laughs> the living brother. So there's there's no like one giant trauma that makes this happen. And I think that's the story for the vast majority of these stories, that especially among the entrepreneurial world, the founders that I know who have gotten close to that experience or who have had an attempt or who, you know, have lost someone in their lives in this way. It's just this like massive accumulation that happens so slowly that you can't always see it. It's kind of like the frog boiling in the pot. It's just usually not this dramatic, this happened, then someone takes their life. It's, it's 10,000 things. It's a million things. It's all of these moments put together. And because it's so messy, it makes supporting someone through this kind of grief really hard. You know, people have asked me what happened, and I sort of look at them blankly, like, I don't know how to tell you what happened. 
I don't know how to tell you without telling you the story of my brother and his beautiful blue eyes and what a like absolutely adorable little child he was and how at some point as a teenager he began to sort of get lost and couldn't really ever right the ship again there's it's 10,000 things there's no answer to what happened and so I don't know how to talk to people about it unless they have like three hours. <laughs> and I think to be honest, one of the great heartaches of this experience for me has been to kind of reach out to people as I've told people individually, you know, either by text or, or mentioned it to people in my conversations. People look wide-eyed. They say, I'm so sorry. And they never bring it up again. And if you're listening and you're one of my friends who's done this, it's okay. I still love you. I know it's really hard, but I think that's what's so isolating about it is like the experience for me grieving this kind of loss is going to be years long. And the conversations sharing the news are sometimes a text message or sometimes a 10 minute conversation, but no one can enter this grief space with me in the way that, um, the way that would make it feel less lonely. So I think part of my process has been to accept that, to not be mad at my friends for not following up and not acknowledging and not sending flowers. When my dad died, lots and lots of cards came in. And obviously, um, if you follow me on social media, I was a little bit more public about that loss. But when my brother died, the only person who sent flowers was Benjamin from Knapsack, who was building my website. <laughs> and, and that's sort of the part of quiet grief that's hard. People didn't send flowers because many people didn't know. Many people didn't know, so I felt more and more isolated. I felt more isolated, so I didn't tell anyone. You know, it's just this, like, cycle of quiet. Sometimes people struggle by saying really unhelpful things. My brother had had a pretty rough mental health history, especially for the last couple years. We brought him to live here in Minneapolis so he could be in treatment. And so he was someone who was really struggling. He was unwell for a number of years. And one of the harder comments that someone said to me was like, well, you kind of knew this would happen. And while that's objectively true, it felt so unhelpful to my grief because Yes, I knew it would happen, but my brother still died. Like there's got to be space for me to fall apart a little bit. The knowing that the thing is going to happen doesn't eliminate grief. Ask anybody who's lost anyone in a predictable way, whether it's, you know, cancer or Alzheimer's or mental illness. Like, yeah, I could sort of predict objectively that this may be the outcome, but that doesn't negate the mountain of pain that you sit with. I think the other thing that's been interesting for me is, is how to maintain my professional life as I've walked through this grief. And I let some clients, some people in my professional world sort of know, like I just lost my brother. So, you know, I'm canceling appointments or I'm going to push out some timelines. I'm going to rearrange some things. And of course, people are gracious and, and really happy to do that. But there have been moments where I've said aloud, like, I, I don't know that I can be a psychologist anymore. Like in my dark moments, I think I 
am so well trained in how to help prevent this outcome, how to quote unquote save people from this, that I couldn't use those superpowers to save my own brother. What is like, maybe I should just like throw away the shingle. Like I have no business doing this. And of course, when I vocalized this, most people are like, no, like this, this is your life's work. But every once in a while, or one person said something like, um, well, what else do you think you would do? <laughs> which, which again is, is meant to be helpful, but also like, oh gosh, like my whole life has to take, be taken apart now. So I think that's what's hard and that's what makes this grieving thing hard is that people intuitively know that like, oh, when you are in the presence of someone who just lost someone they love to suicide, they're in a pretty fragile state. And so you just don't know what to say or what to ask. And I have deep empathy for that. It's not easy to say and do the right things. I will say for me that because loss is the absence of something, the presence of things has felt hopeful, oddly. So sending flowers. My friend Carrie sends great care packages. Other friends have sent cards or, you know, gift certificates to my favorite restaurants. Like the, almost like the holding the tangible thing is helpful because it helps counterbalance the absolutely untethered feeling that goes along with reaching out for somebody who used to be there and isn't there anymore. So I think if you are someone who is, who, who loves someone else who is grieving in this way or a different way, I have a newly profound respect for the, like the old school practice of sending flowers, sending cards, sending an object, sticking something in the mail, because it's the sort of holding on to things that feels, that has felt helpful. And I, I hope that I will do that more now, having been through this. This kind of loss is hard in lots of ways, but um, there's all these practical things that go along with loss that I experienced some with my dad, but this is sort of the second round of it. Like, I really wanted um, the coroner's report. Like, I wanted to know where he died and kind of... The, the sort of medical explanation of how he died. I know that that's a little bit dark, but um, he, he died in Montana. So he had left Minneapolis just a few days before he died. And I wanted to sort of understand where the location was so that, you know, if sometime I want to visit, I can. And so the, the coroner's report is the best record of that. But of course, it's, it's not, it's like a grisly beast. Like it's not something that you want to read. And it sat in my inbox for a long time. And it just sat there in my email alongside like my kids' friends' parents' request for playdates and my clients' sort of question about a billing thing and like all of this other just mundane, normal stuff in my life. All of this, all of my life was like in my inbox and there was one email that sort of detailed how my brother's body came to, to no longer be living. Like, and I just, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it for a long time that like right upside the play date was the story of how my brother's hat flew off of his head. Like these are really unreal details. If you know anything about the, the stages of grief, you know that many people feel anger that was certainly part of my reaction was 
was pretty significant anger. And I, my brother had left treatment 10 days before he died. And he was discharged from this place that he had received really good treatment to a really, really halfway house kind of interim housing kind of place. And he was scared. He was miserable. He was not well there. And, you know, that's one of the pieces where it's like, oh, if the math had been a little different. But as a, as a clinician, I sort of know like, oh, some, some discharge policies were not practiced here. Like some things there was not appropriate follow-up. He didn't have ongoing um, medical care. Like there was just some things that I know got missed. And I, I kind of used my, the power of my title and education to get a, a meeting with the, the chairman of the board <laughs> at this um, mental health organization where my brother received treatment. And I really, I went into this meeting ready to just impale this person, really their organization, not this person individually, but like just to tell them everything that they did wrong. And of course, like five minutes into the conversation, I realized that this, this person that I'm speaking to that I want to just pour all my anger into also lost someone to suicide. He lost his daughter to suicide. So like uh, Im immediately, like the anger went away. I was like, okay, we're just like broken people working in a broken system. And so that was sort of the resolution of, of anger for me was the connection to this other person and the realization that he serves on the board of this organization to try to make things, things better. And yes, some things need to change. It wasn't handled the way that it should have been handled for my brother. I'm actually thinking about joining the board myself to see if I can help have those conversations better. So I keep coming back to the, the resolution of my grief and resolution is not the right word, but if I'm going to find a way to grieve well, it will be because I continue to believe that things can be better for people who are in tremendous pain. And I do believe that for my brother. I believe that for myself. I believe that for all of the founders and entrepreneurs that I work with, that I believe there is an other option and a different side of pain. And that's what I'm gonna spend my life working on. So by the time this podcast goes live, it will be about five months since I lost him. So it's still like a very raw new thing. And I will not for a second claim that like I've got it all figured out. That is not the intention of this podcast. There's definitely a road ahead for me, for my mother, for my brother, for Rob and, and my children, for you know all the people that were part of his life. Dave wasn't an entrepreneur, you know, he wasn't someone who would normally get profiled on this podcast. He wasn't, I guess, successful in the traditional ways that we define success, but he spent years living in Montana and he loved the rivers and mountains. He worked in coffee shops and, you know, taco restaurants, sort of wherever he needed to in order to be near these beautiful wild places that completely captured him. When he was, I don't know, 22 or 23, he rode his bicycle from California where we grew up to West Yellowstone, I think, into Montana. And it was kind of this adventure of a lifetime for him. And it's it was the beginning of this long love of 
being outside and being in the mountains and he really had a deep sense of joy when he was in these wild places. He operated ski lifts. He was a river raft guide. He was a hiker. He was a mountain biker. He played well. If you spent time in Montana, maybe he served your coffee sometime. I don't know. But he loved Glacier National Park. That's where he spent most of the last years of his life and where he died. I think the thing that's so surreal about it is that um, all around us, there are these magical people, whether they are running our ski lift or serving our coffee or teaching our yoga class. There are all of these magical people who are carrying an immense amount of pain and we never, like we never know it. And of course, the great tragedy of suicide is that we never get to know it. There's never another chapter. There's never a chance encounter. There's never a conversation on a bus or over the counter at a coffee shop. And, you know, I don't know how many of you are listening to this podcast, but I wish you could have known my brother. I wish you could have met him. He was sweet and shy and kind and had the most brilliant, beautiful blue eyes. And the world is like a tiny bit worse because he's not here. Not just for me. It's way worse for me. <laughs> but it's a tiny bit worse for you, too. If you do any um, sort of reading about mental health or population trends, you are well aware that suicide is on the rise, especially among young children, um, children in the sort of 10 to 13 range. It's always been highest among older men. It's rising among teenagers. It's kind of like across the board going up. And I mean, I could do a deep dive into all the reasons that I think that's happening. Um, there's certainly some great research explaining why it's happening, but you know, without making this a two hour podcast episode, I think one of the things that contributes is the extent to which we don't see each other very well anymore. And so, you know, if there's any humble request I could make of you, now that you have spent all this time listening to this, it would be to really try to see the people around you, the, the shadowy people, the hidden people, the people whose social media profiles aren't glorious, and to communicate to them in whatever method you have available to you that they are valuable, that they are worthy of respect and concern. I don't know that that would reverse the 10,000 things that brought my brother to the conclusion that he came to, but it feels like some small action in the right direction at least. I think it is very true, the old quote. I think it's attributed to Plato. I don't know if that's just like the internet version of the world, <laughs> but um, that invitation to be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I know that I've been fighting a hard battle the last five months with my brother, two years with my dad's cancer and death. And it's because of the kindness of people around me that I still feel very capable of contributing and participating in a conversation about mental health or even deciding to talk about this publicly. 
So to the many people out there that I know personally, thank you for your kindness. If you listened to the episode last week, I, I talked with Adi about his poetry. So I thought I'd end today's episode with another poem, my favorite poem. This is from Naomi Shahab Nye, and the poem is called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you carefully counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian and the white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.